everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. But pretty soon, I'm going to be doing even better. Because I have a surefire money-making idea that's going to make me richer than a ham stuffed with cookies. See, as near as I can figure, the world is ready for a new line of delicious breakfast cereals. Where did I get this idea, you may ask? Well, the same place I get all my ideas. By ripping off an older, more established idea that was already a success. Let's set our Wayback Machines for 50 years ago. The year was 1971, and some advertising executive figured that what the kids of the 70s were probably super into was movie franchises aimed at adults from 40 years ago. And that's why they introduced Count Chocula, a character based on Bela Lugosi's performance in the 1931 movie Dracula, and Frankenberry, based on Boris Karloff's performance in Frankenstein. So I figure, in order to replicate the success of the monster serials, we just need to go back about 40 years and figure out what actors who starred in films marketed towards adults would really resonate with the kids of today. Now, the obvious choice would be the slasher films of the late 70s, early 80s. But the problem with that is, a little bit too derivative of the monster serials, and of those, really only Freddy was a talker, so you've really just got the one spokesperson, and then, I don't know, Jason Moore, please, who would have a giant, like, machete-style spoon and a hockey mask shaped like a strawberry, I guess, wouldn't really be contributing all that much to the sales pitch in the animated cartoons. Also, frankly, I'd be a little surprised if somebody hasn't already done something where Freddy Krueger has spoons instead of knives coming out of his glove. It's you know, just kind of on the nose. So instead, I propose Denirios and Al Pacino's. Two iconic actors, very popular about 40 years ago, whose voices are fairly easy to do a recognizable impression of. Plus, unlike Karloff and Lugosi, they didn't get pigeonholed into set roles as much, so you have more of a variety of either line of cereal you could work with. Say you don't like the syrupy courtroom drama of Scent of a Waffle. Well, then how about a nice big bowl of Scony Montanas? The breakfast cereal made of delicious tiny scones and marshmallow machine guns. Or as Scony Montana would call them, his little friends. And if you don't like the original flavor of Denirios or Flake Lamadas, which is basically Frosted Flakes but with uh, tiny marshmallow boxing gloves, then maybe a big bowl of uh, Travis Pickles, the pickle-flavored cereal that a lot of people take the wrong message away from. Anyway, if you own a cereal factory and would like to manufacture Al Pacino's and Robert Denirios, then send a check to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. For whatever amount you think is fair. Hopefully a million dollars, but I'd take 50 bucks. Anyway, before we get into today's podcast, I do want to point something out. We recorded this episode remotely, and Corey's audio is not great. 
I did everything that I could to try to clean it up, but it is still of a noticeably lower quality than it normally is. So I'm really sorry about that. And if you find it really frustrating, rest assured, I do too. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was submitted by Peter McNelly. The Playful Dolphin's Water Slap produced a fin flop mist. Hub's comic book collection helped produce this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Peter. New Teen Titans. Nope. I'm sorry, scratch that as of this issue. New Titans. Teens no more. Number 50. December 1988. Who is Wonder Girl? Chapter 1. Home Again. Written by Marf Wolfman and George Perez. Drawed by George Perez. Hooray. Inked by Bob McLeod. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Barbara Kiesel. Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Nightwing. Beast Boy. Raven. Cyborg. Starfire. Jericho, and Danny fucking Chase. Previously in Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly very significant amount of comic book time ago, teen sidekicks Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad, hooray, teamed up to fight a shitty colonial cosplayer with a magic tornado stick and an imperfect understanding of teenage slang. The young heroes emerged triumphant, and a fast friendship was formed. In their second group hang, this trio of teenagers was joined by Wonder Girl, a.k.a. Donna Troy, whose origin was a gaping hole in the loosely woven fabric that passed for DC Comics continuity. Wonder Girl proposed that this quartet of kid crime fighters solidify their relationship by forming an official team and calling themselves the Teen Titans. Hooray! Over the years, the Titans went through many iterations, and the plot threads of Donna's occasionally paradoxical history were written, rewritten, and retconned into the continuity equivalent of a Gordian knot. Gadzooks! Is Marv Wolfman the Alexander who is finally going to slice through the metaphoric knot of Donna's past? Exactly what is Wonder Girl's connection to Wonder Woman? And will we finally learn the answer to the titular question, who is Wonder Girl? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... I guess, kind of? I mean, if Alexander had tied the knot himself, and his way of slicing through it was to decide that it had never actually existed. She doesn't have one. And, yeah, she's a titan. But the other kind. In a bucolic suburban town in Virginia, a mysterious robed and hooded person approaches two children who are playing in their yard. The children are Cindy and Jerry Evans. Remember when I said that Donna's backstory was complicated? Well, Jerry and Cindy are the children of Faye Evans, the woman who first adopted Donna when she was a baby, but then gave her backup for adoption when her husband Carl died. She later remarried a guy named Hank, who is the father of Cindy and Jerry, but Faye didn't tell Hank about Donna until Dick helped Donna track Faye down a couple of years ago. Now the Evanses consider Donna part of their family. Uh, sort of. Anyway, the mysterious stranger asks the kids where Donna is. Cindy is like, she's in New York. 
Jerry is like, shut up, Cindy. We're not supposed to talk to strangers. The stranger is like, yes, the kid has a point. You probably shouldn't, but I'm just going to yoink the information I want out of your brain anyway, so it's kind of a moot point. The stranger yoinks some information out of Cindy's brain and skedaddles. A short while later, the stranger walks into the offices of Donna's photography studio in New York. They try to ask a lady named Ruthie where Donna is, but Ruthie is busy getting harassed over the phone by some asshole named Jake. When Ruthie finally gets off the phone, she informs the stranger that Donna is probably working from home, as she often does, but declines the stranger's request to hand over Donna's home address because that is against their policy, which makes sense. Especially when you consider how many assholes like Jake there are out there. The stranger refuses to take go away for an answer, though. They reach out and grab the Rolodex off Ruthie's desk and suck all of the information out of it through their gnarled and elderly hand. I mean, those things are usually just alphabetical, so it seems like they could have just flipped through it until they got to T for Troy, but whatever. The stranger uses the information that their hand slurped out of the Rolodex and heads over to Donna's apartment. Donna isn't home, so the stranger lets themselves in and starts gawking at all the framed photos on her mantle like a creep. They show particular interest in the photos of Donna hanging out with the Titans. The stranger mutters to himself, Titans, eh? Interesting. Speaking of the Titans, most of the gang is returning home after a long adventure. They are about to land their fancy jet in the hangar of their giant T-shaped skyscraper, when Danny fucking Chase, the only member of the team not in the plane, decides it would be a big help if he hacks into the plane's computer and lands it for them. Aboard the jet, Cyborg is like, What the fuck? Is that little shit Danny fucking Chase doing this? I hate that kid. I think I'll kill him. Beast Boy is like, No, I want to kill him. When the plane lands, Vic and Gar sprint to the tower's control room in a race to see which of them gets to murder Danny first. Gar wins, turning into a baboon to maximize his throttling abilities. He grabs Danny's shirt collar and starts shaking the late-season cast edition like a can of paint in a hardware store. Danny sputters excuses for a few seconds, then his photographic memory kicks in and he finally remembers that he has superpowers. He uses his telekinesis to push Beast Boy away. Nightwing starts to lecture Danny about how remotely accessing the controls of an aircraft without notifying the cockpit is a bad thing. But he gets distracted when he sees a small metal sphere floating near the Cousin Oliver-esque crime fighter's head. Dick is like, uh, Danny? What is that thing? Danny is like, oh, this mysterious floating metal sphere? Just a mysterious floating metal sphere I found. I thought it was neat, so I brought it into the control room of our headquarters. Cool, huh? The gang seems to think that this was not, in fact, a cool thing to do. Their opinion as to the uncoolness of bringing mysterious floating spheres home with you is confirmed when the sphere starts to shimmer and expands into a portal through which a throng of violent insect-like aliens surge and begin to attack the titans. Nice going, Danny. The invading force blasts Wonder Girl with some kind of energy beam, badly injuring her. Raven throws her bird cape over Donna and teleports her to safety. The rest of the Titans start doing their best to kill the alien invaders. Turns out their best is pretty good. The gang kills a bunch of aliens in a very short amount of time. Starfire vaporizes several of them, and Beast Boy turns into a hippopotamus and squashes a few more of them with his butt. Ouch. 
After a brief skirmish, the aliens soon realize they are outmatched. They fire up their laser butt rockets, which is a thing that they have, and start fleeing back towards the portal. Dick yells for someone to do something to stop them from escaping. Someone does. There is a bright flash of light, and suddenly, all of the aliens are disintegrated. Hooray? The gang looks around to see who killed all their enemies for them. It was the mysterious stranger from the beginning of the book. Hi, mysterious stranger! The stranger pushes back their hood and reveals himself to be a pretty young lady with stars twinkling in her jet black hair. Huh. I mean, the galaxy hair is nice and all, but even though you couldn't clearly see her face before, I had really gotten the impression from her hands that she was much older than that. Weird. The stranger is like, I need to see Donna Troy right away. Dick is like, not unless you tell us why. The stranger is like, there's no time to tell you why. There is, however, apparently enough time for me to repeatedly tell you that there's no time to tell you why over and over and over again. So she does that. Her redundant proclamations about the urgent need for brevity are interrupted when Raven teleports back with an injured Donna. At first, the wounds seem as though they might be fatal, but Raven ravens just as hard as she can, and Donna starts feeling better. Hooray! As Raven ministers to Wonder Girl's wounds, Danny notices that the mysterious sphere which the aliens used to invade the Titan Tower has changed back from a portal and is now just a plain old mysterious metal sphere again. He picks it up to play with it. Damn it, Danny! Cyborg grabs the orb away from him and looks at it thoughtfully. Jericho asks Raven if she's okay after using her mysterious nonsense power so hard. The avian-themed empath is like, Thank you, Jericho, but I'm fine. It hurt like shit, but it turns out I'm kind of into that now. Good to know. The stranger is like, Yes, yes, I'm glad Donna Troy is better. Now let me talk to her. Now that they're no longer worried about Donna dying, the gang is more polite about it, but they still want to know what the stranger's deal is. The stranger is like, I would totally tell you, but as I have repeatedly said now, there is no time. None at all. None whatsoever. Time to talk to you, that is. Explaining why I am here would cost precious seconds, which I cannot spare, because of how urgent my business is, you see. That is why I simply cannot tell you why I am... Donna interrupts the stranger's lecture about what a tight schedule she's on, and is like, Okay, fine, I'll talk to you. Who are you, and what is your deal? The other Titans are about to intervene and break up the conversation, but Raven's like, No, guys, it's fine. My nonsense powers tell me that she's cool. The stranger is like, I'd say thank you, but there's no time, so I won't. Just know that I would have if there was time, which there isn't. Anyway, Donna, you know all your memories? Donna's like, yeah? The stranger's like, well, most of them are bullshit. Sorry. Donna makes eye contact with the galaxy-haired stranger, and from that point forward, the rest of their conversation is telepathic. The stranger thinks at Donna and is like, Okay, so let's go through a bunch of your memories, and I'll tell you which ones are bullshit. Sound good? Donna thinks, uh, I guess? The stranger is like, okay, so remember when you were three and you were in that fire? 
Donna's like, kinda? Let's see. I was rescued by Wonder Woman. No, wait, that got retconned away because after Crisis on Infinite Earths, which I definitely don't remember, probably, Wonder Woman wouldn't have been around yet at that point, and now I've never met her. So I guess it was a, I don't know, a fireman or something? It's a little bit hazy. Possibly because I was like three. The stranger is like, no, it's hazy because that's when your memories start being bullshit that we total recalled into your brain because of reasons. Donna thinks, Waha? The stranger thinks, Remember that orphanage you went to after the fire? Bullshit. All your grade school chums? Bullshit. That family that adopted you? Bullshit. Everything you remember from before the fire is real, and everything after you joined the Teen Titans is real, except maybe some of the Bob Haney stuff, I guess. He wasn't big on continuity. But Everything between the fire and you deciding to join the Teen Titans? Donna's like, bullshit? The stranger's like, now you're getting it. When Donna tries to remember what really happened during the dozen or so years of her life that are apparently missing, all she gets is vague images of space and cosmic-looking backdrops. Donna's like, the first real memory I have now is of being a young teenager and seeing an American flag? I thought it looked pretty and made myself a costume based on it. Then I read in the paper about Aqualad, Robin, and Kid Flash teaming up and decided I should hang out with them. The stranger's like, We sent you to them because we thought that if you were hanging out with other powerful teens, then you would be safe. So if the stranger thinks that powerful teens hanging out with each other are safe, I guess she must not be from the future. Or at least not a future where they have the movie Cruel Intentions. Donna is like, I was the one that suggested the name of the team. The stranger is like, yeah, that was probably your real memory sneaking in a little bit. Interesting. Donna's like, so then the Titans broke up for a minute, then reformed as the new Teen Titans. I opened a photography studio and married Terry Long. Wait, is that bullshit too? The stranger's like, no, as I said, everything after you joined the Titans, including your marriage to Terry, really happened. Donna's like, oh, um, good. So what did happen during that missing 12 years? Suddenly, the psychic bond between Wonder Girl and the stranger is broken. The stranger collapses on the floor. Dick runs over and checks on her. He's like, hey. Were you always like a hundred years old? Because I could have sworn you weren't a hundred a few minutes ago. The rest of the Titans look around and are like, Hey, looks like all the damage from our fight with the aliens is completely repaired. What happened? The stranger's like, I did that. It took the last of my energy, but I had to do it. Dick is like, you know, actually, most of us are, like, super rich. It wouldn't have been a big deal at all for us to pay to have all that stuff fixed. We do it all the time. The stranger continues. And in answer to your earlier question, I am indeed super-duper old. I was only temporarily rejuvenated for a little while. Now, I'm dying. Cyborg is like, Raven, can you use your nonsense powers to cure her? Raven's like, no, she's dying of oldness, and I can't cure old. 
The gang gets the stranger into a high-tech, fancy hospital bed and gathers around her. Donna is like, So now can you tell me about those missing years? Why did you come here? The stranger is like, There's probably no time to tell you all of it, but my name is Phoebe, and I'm the goddess of the moon. I'm one of the ancient titans of myth. We're dying, and only you can save us. But no pressure. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I know this won't be coming out for a couple of weeks from when we're recording it, but I just posted the Haunted Disco Barn episode, and that was just such an all-consuming part of my life for the couple of weeks leading up to it that it just feels kind of weird, but good weird not to have that on my plate anymore. Yeah, I bet. I imagine that was a lot of work. It was. I knew I had a whole year to do it, but I felt like I had a whole year to do it until I had a week and a half to do it. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, that's the way those things go. Deadlines. Yeah. (laughs) That's been my experience with them. Largely mine as well. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's jump on in. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? My feelings about this comic book are complicated, I suppose. Mm. On one hand, I think I had been missing the detail and the art style of Perez. So I was really excited to see him come back. And for sure, he delivers on a lot of the detail that we always appreciated with his work. Mm -hmm. And so the art was good. It was just it was almost a little bit jarring. Yeah, I know what you mean. We've gotten really used to Eduardo Barreto's style. And like we had said last time going into this, I feel like Barreto kind of gets short shrift in a lot of discussions about Teen Titans artwork. I was going into this with the idea that, you know, I am excited to see Perez again because I like Perez as an artist, but I don't feel like he was that much better than Barreto. And honestly, when I opened the first page, my reaction to it was really just like, holy shit, this is fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's a level of detail that we had generally seen with Perez before. I think maybe earlier in the second volume of New Teen Titans, like when he was like really excited to be restarting a series and working with a different paper and was trying different art techniques than it was at this level. But I was really blown away by a lot of the art. Yeah, the fine line detail in it is pretty amazing. Other than the art, how did you feel about the issue? Yeah, so that's the other thing. We've, you know, we've discussed on the show a fair amount, like, when are we going to finally get the Donna Troy story? Mm -hmm. And they're making attempts to give that to us. But since it's going to be what a three story arc, I don't know, I guess I'm just nervous (laughs) that they're going to get to the end and be like, Oh, never mind, we can't explain it after all. I know what you mean. I also am of two minds on this issue. Overall, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. But there are definitely things about it that make me nervous. One of the bigger ones is, I feel like whenever 
you have a complicated story that relies on solving a logistical problem like the retconning of Wonder Girl or any kind of a big story problem with a cosmic solution, it's never entirely satisfying. And that's kind of where it feels like this is headed. We get like, how can we fit Wonder Girl's backstory into this new universe? And it seems like they are just using a omnipotent sledgehammer to do it instead of like some clockwork. You know what I mean? Mm, The omnipotent sledgehammer of, well, we needed to lie to you about all your memories and like put you in storage with the Titans so that they would protect you until we needed you and now we need you. Yeah, that one. Okay. So let's just real quick go over what Wonder Girl's previous backstory and continuity had been at various points. There's a lot. I don't know. I I feel like it's wading into murky waters. This is the comic book equivalent of getting involved in a land war in Asia. Mm. But Wonder Girl or some form of Wonder Girl first showed up in 1958. And a story that was written by Robert Koeniger, who we've read a bunch of his stuff before, especially in the old Teen Titan issues. And that is why the orphanage that she is adopted from in this issue is called Koeniger's Orphanage. Back when she showed up then in 58, she was just Wonder Woman when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Wonder Woman would have reminiscences of, oh yeah, back when I was just Wonder Girl, I used to do this shit. I used to date Merboy and all of this stuff. Then you had the Teen Titans era of Wonder Girl, which is the one that we first met. She shows up in Brave and the Bold number 60. Bob Haney wrote that one and just had her show up and be like, hey, it's me, Wonder Girl. You know how I've always existed and been separate from Wonder Woman? Yeah, that. Mm -hmm. And they just went with that for about five years, I think. (laughs) At that point, Marv Wolfman, very young Marv Wolfman at that point, because this would have been late 60s, in Teen Titans number 21, gave Wonder Girl as a separate entity from Wonder Woman her first origin. And it was pretty bare bones because I think it was done in a backup story. But basically, she was an orphan. Her parents died in a fire. Wonder Woman rescued her from that fire and then took her back to Paradise Island and shot her with a purple ray to give her Amazon powers Yep. so that she wouldn't feel out of whack with the rest of the Amazons. And that's her deal. Then, in the famous and really, really well done, I think, Who is Donna Troy story in New Teen Titans number 38, we find out what her origin was before the fire. That one is a little bit complicated, but basically, her mom died when she was a baby. I can't remember if it was childbirth or if she got a disease right after she was born, but her mom died right after she was born, sent her to an orphanage. She was adopted by a couple named Faye and Carl Stacy, and they were rad. But then Carl died, and Faye couldn't afford to keep her anymore, so reluctantly had to give her back up for adoption, sent her back to the orphanage. Orphanage was up to some shady shit, child selling and whatnot. So Mm. some criminals ended up adopting her, kind of, and were planning on selling her on the black market. So they took her to that hotel as like a way station. And that was where the fire started and Wonder Woman came in and rescued her. So complicated stuff, but all of those pieces pretty much fit together. 
Then you get the Crisis on Infinite Earths, wipes out the fact that there can be a connection between Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl. So now everything between the fire and her meeting the Teen Titans is implanted memories by, it turns out, big reveal at the end, the old Titans. Mm. That's a lot, man. Yep. And now... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, now I guess we'll see where they go with this. It was weird, too, that it ended with the, if you don't help us, then the old Titans will die. And when she said that, my first thought was, yeah, I'm kind of okay with that. Not a big fan of a ton of their previous work from what we've seen. I'm guessing this is supposed to be a different version of the old Titans. I guess last time we saw them when, like, they hooked up with Lilith and whatever, they were mostly cool except for Lilith's mom, so I guess that's fine. But, like, when we saw them before with Hyperion and shit, they seemed like a bunch of jerks. In the ancient Greek mythology, they were mostly a bunch of jerks. If something happens to them, I mean, okay. Did you have any thoughts on the old Titans? You know, pretty much aligned with what you said. They seem like a bunch of jerks. And I don't know, if I'm Donna in this situation, I'm going to be like, I don't know you very well, Phoebe. Or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe Donna Troy doesn't know her from before. Or does she? Well, I think she doesn't remember knowing her, but she apparently does. Like, she's connected to all of her missing memories, so maybe she just remembered all about her after the big exposition dump. Yeah, so if I'm her in this position, I'm going to be like, well, a Hyperion guy was a real piece of work, and mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not feeling super... Mo I just got shot by really creepy space aliens, also, by the way, so... yeah. Maybe stop making me play this guessing game about myself, which that's the other annoying thing. Why, if somebody comes and is like, oh, by the way, here's all the keys to your past. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. I totally wanted to know the keys to my past. And they're like, OK, mm -hmm. start guessing. Yeah, like, I just came to tell you that everything you believed is false. Oh, what's the truth? I'll get to that later, probably. Mm -hmm. It's a dick move. Yeah, I didn't get why she had to do that. On the other hand, I did like the fact that she had galaxy hair. That was a pretty sweet fucking look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, some, that was good galaxy hair. So, yeah, there's a lot about the story that gives me pause that I have issues with. But honestly, that being said, it feels like it's going somewhere. It feels like it's building up to something. I was relieved that they didn't get rid of the who is donna troy story from continuity it had felt like in the last issue that this was mentioned and i think it was two issues ago or something two or three they had dick say something along the lines of we'll find out what your real past is i'm sorry that i came up blank when i tried before because all of your records were lost in the orphanage fire so that really seemed to be like that was oh you remember that who is donna troy story yeah none of that shit happened mm -hmm. This issue, it opens with, okay, no, all of that shit did happen because she knows the Evans that are the nice family that tried to adopt her and then the husband died. Faye remarried and then she had her own kids and now Donna's considered part of their family. So all of that stuff did happen. Really, the whole Who is Donna Troy story was all concerned with past events from before the fire. 
So I'm relieved that that stuff still happened. That's nice. I know it doesn't really make any difference and like, yeah, it sucks that all our memories are bullshit, but it's still nice that that happened. I don't know why that was a sticking point for me, but it was. Mm -hmm. So I was happy to have that resolved. It does still seem incredibly nebulous what even her fake memories of that period had been. Like, she doesn't really go into detail about these memories that she had that she just found out are fake. Other than, I guess I was at an orphanage for a while. Says something about her getting adopted by a family in Delaware. I think that's supposed to be the Evans, but that was before the fire, so that wouldn't have been the case. Mm. Like, if she had been adopted by a family, then why did she think she didn't have any family? And why was the Evans being her family a huge deal for her that made her feel like it, she could get married? Like, we still don't really have any conception of what even she thinks happened between the ages of three and 14. Yeah, and they don't really explain it either. No, and I honestly kind of get the feeling that they're not going to. Because why bother? That was all false anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these things should be incredibly frustrating for me. And in some ways they are, and they do make me a little bit nervous. But I got swept along with the story, and it feels like it's going somewhere, and the art was fucking beautiful. And I'm happy to have somebody co-plotting along with Wolfman. And it felt really good. I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic about the future of this comic book now. Yeah, I'm curious to see where it goes also. And speaking of the artwork, it was a real delight to uh, see that kind of flashback scenes to the initial Teen Titans that uh, I was introduced to at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, totally. It was fun to see Wonder Girl hanging out with Aqualad and those guys and to see Perez get to draw those. I think Perez was a big fan of that early Teen Titans era stuff from context that I've picked up in other places and some interviews with him. I think he really enjoyed the Teen Titans West era in a way that I think Marv Wolfman didn't. It was cool to see like those old adventures represented in a different art style. And that was really fun, too. I think the Sylvester Stallone movie that this comic reminds me of <laughs> would be Rocky Balboa. Which uh, one is that? Is that like a really recent one? Like num number six? Yes, it would have been number six. It would have been before the Creed mm. series came out. So... I went into that with pretty low expectations. I expected to feel some nostalgia, but overall, I was kind of tired of that franchise. Was starting to lose patience with it because Rocky V was such a turd. Mm -hmm. And then going into it, I was like, oh, this premise is really dumb because the premise was they made a video game where Rocky Balboa was rated higher than the current champion. And so the champ decided he wanted to fight Rocky and Rocky was like, OK, I'm like 60, but I guess I'll fight the hot new champ. And then they fought to a draw. Pretty dumb premise. But then I found myself really charmed by it and kind of won over and reinvested in the characters in a way that I hadn't been before. So uh, I think this is like a Rocky Balboa. All right. So you got a, we got a Rocky Six feel to this for you. Yeah. There was a lot that happened in this comic book that made me wonder if 
Marf Wolfman was watching a lot of 80s horror franchises at the time. Maybe it's just because it's Halloween season. But having Danny just find a phantasm ball and bring it home with him seemed like a weird move. I was so troubled by how relaxed everybody was about the phantasm ball, especially after (laughs) all those super gnarly, deadly aliens popped out of him. Yeah. And then they're just like, well, that probably won't happen again. Like, up until the aliens popped out of it, it was inexplicable to me that Danny was not more freaked out about the thing. That he was just like, hey, I found this weird floating sphere and decided to bring it home with me because I thought it was cool. No curiosity about it, whatever. And then, yeah, you're right. After the aliens pop out of it and try to kill everybody, they're still just letting it bop around. Like, maybe put that thing in some kind of a super bell jar or something. Yeah. Sheesh. The other horror franchise that it seemed like maybe Wolfman had been watching, though, was Hellraiser, just because there seemed to be a sudden with Raven shift to, I cannot really tell the difference between pleasure and pain. Such sights I could show you. I feel giddy when I release so much pain. It hurts every time, but I like it. It's like, oh, okay, that's fine if that's what you're into, Raven, but there really hadn't been a lot of signs of that before. Yeah. Yeah, no, that struck me as pretty weird. Just an odd move to put in there all of a sudden. And not the only odd move that this comic book decided to take. Wait, were you thinking of an 80s horror movie about an out-of-control rampaging hippopotamus? Was there one? It seems like there should have been. But is this the first time we see Beast Boy kill somebody, at least with his buttocks? Possibly? The attitude towards alien murder is very inconsistent in this book. But yeah, it does look like he does kill an alien by sitting on it with his giant hippo butt. Mm -hmm. That was a very fun panel for me. (laughs) So weird. There's actually like bits of, I don't know, viscera something flying into the field of vision. It's very violent. It is. For some reason, it is still less disturbing to me than if he had killed the aliens by eating them with his giant hippo mouth, the way a hippo would normally kill somebody. Mm. The idea of him, like, eating somebody to death is very disturbing, even if it is an alien someone. Mm. I enjoyed overall the depiction of the aliens. Those were some weird, creepy-looking aliens, and I thought it was a really nice touch. I don't know if this was John Costanza's doing, but... Having the aliens speak in what looks like just an indecipherable series of glyphs, except for the one time when they say the word Titans, you can still see it's glyphs that are kind of shaped like the word Titans. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really fun and also kind of made sense. Like, that was the version of the aliens trying to say the word Titans because they had probably heard the old Titans or whoever they think they're attacking call themselves that so they don't have a different word for it in their language kind of like when you're listening to like somebody speak a foreign language and then you'll just hear like television or something you know like a newer invention Mm -hmm. like a modern word just snuck in there so i thought that was a kind of fun touch rather than just have the aliens all speak with a bunch of little apostrophes yeah i I gotta say i miss the apostrophes a little bit (laughs) like how do i know they're aliens (laughs) There are some context clues that I think could could help you figure out that they're aliens. Like the uh, tentacle fingers. Uh Uh-huh. Or the fact that they look kind of like the Mars Attacks aliens with the exposed brains. Mm Mm-hmm. 
when Phoebe first showed up at the beginning of the comic and was the robed, hooded, very elderly person, did you have a guess as to who she might be? I was kind of hoping it was like a new version of the Hive guy with a mustache, but... Aww. Was that Rudy? Was it? Was that his name? I can't remember. Oh, that's so sad. I forgot his name. Let's call him Rudy. Sure. Oh, God. I want it to be Rudy now. I mean... There's no way of knowing without going back and listening to old episodes, and Lord knows I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But that would have been nice. Who I thought it was, was Destiny, because we've seen Destiny from, like, the Sandman comics pop up in New Teen Titans before. I think that's where he had his first appearance. And so you see this, like, robed figure who talks about something that is going to come to pass and he needs to deal with it. I really thought that it was Destiny which was why I I thought it was really funny when he said, Heed your brothers, I have always listened to mine. I thought, first of all, that it was Destiny. So I thought it was Destiny, and he was talking about the other Endless, Mm -hmm. like Dream and Delirium and Death and Despair and Destruction. And so I thought it was really funny that, oh, and their other sister is Donna, because that starts with a D, too. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's the big ones. It's destiny, dream, death, destruction, desire, despair, delirium, and Donna. Sure, yeah. And, and their baby brother, Dave. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cute. So I was kind of disappointed when it turned out that it was somebody else. I was also not just disappointed, but horrified when she used her powers to fuse the Rolodex together. Why would you do that? It seemed like such a dick move. I think she just absorbed all of the information from it, which was another reason I thought she was Destiny, because he's got that book, and I was like, oh, yeah, he likes to chain up books or whatever. But I was honestly so upset by that. I was like, they need those business contacts. They don't have another way to access them. You have ruined this photography business. I know, and that's like that was manual back in the day, right? You would write the thing with a pen on the Rolodex. Yeah, and now they're all stuck together for no goddamn reason because this hooded asshole decided she wanted to know where Donna was. Bad move. Very disturbing. I was relieved when I found out that it wasn't Destiny that was doing that because I always kind of liked that guy. Mm -hmm. I don't think we had seen before the Titans all seated around a T-shaped table, had we? Gosh, I feel like that should have come up. But uh, I can't I can't remember a specific instance. Maybe it has and I just didn't notice it before. But I was struck by the idea that maybe the people making it just thought that was a T for table. (laughs) I like the idea of having all of your furniture shaped like the letter it starts with. The bed would be really uncomfortable. Mm. I mean, I guess it would depend on what font you used. Like, if it's big bubble letters where there's not much of a hole in the middle, you'd probably be okay. I guess. Hard to put sheets on, though. Ugh. It's hard enough, man. <laughs> oh, God. You know how, like, you always see ghosts wearing sheets? Uh-huh. And, like, that's what a ghost looks like? Well, I was thinking, what if they just died trying to put fitted sheets on a bed and they got tangled up in them? And that's their unfinished business? Oh. Uh, that's why it looks like ghosts are always wearing sheets because that's how they died and uh you know 
<laughs> they're never going to figure out how to do it. So that's why they're always going to walk the earth because they'll never figure out how to put a fitted sheet, uh, how to fold a fitted sheet. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of art choices in this that I thought lended to the storytelling in a really interesting way. One of them was the use of a detailed black and white sketch as a photograph. I thought that was a really clever way to show that it was different than the other images were being presented in the book. And it was also just a really gorgeous sketch that was done. But uh, I thought that was really fun. So was it supposed to be a a drawing or just like a really old-timey, what is that called, daguerreotype? Like an old picture? Yeah, see, at first I thought it was just a sketch, and it was a really well-done one, too, because it does look like it is just in the middle of a white piece of paper. But I think later on it is described as being a photograph. Mm -hmm. So that could have been, maybe I'm ascribing too much thought going into it. That may have just been the result of a miscue between Wolfman and Perez. But either way, it worked for me. One of the other things that you get to see, and this is another one where I'm not entirely sure it's intentional, but it seemed like it. When Wonder Girl as a little baby is being rescued from the fire, her first thought is, I remember someone saving me. Was it a woman? And that's pretty clearly a nod to her initial continuity where it was Wonder Woman who was saving her. But as she is remembering that, the flashback panel to that switches to black and white and it's a close-up of her face and it's got all of those little uh, I think they're called Bob Day dots that you get from reprinting and enlarging old comic books. And so the idea that that specific memory is from an old comic book uh, just tickled me. I didn't catch that. That's clever. Yeah. Like I said, it may not have been intentional. That may just be the way that the black and white two-tone image is reproduced, but that was the way I was struck by it. Mm -hmm. One of the other art shifts that worked really well for me is when you get the title page with the Who is Wonder Girl in big colorful letters, and it's the T-Jet returning home from wherever they're returning home from. It looks very super friends. It looks like really bright and colorful and almost cartoony. And that contrasts really starkly with the previous images, which were of like civilians in New York and Destiny, or I'm sorry, not Destiny, Phoebe, (laughs) trying to find Donna Troy. And like just having that difference between like the civilian world being stark and realistic and then the Titans Tower be this like bright DC Universe cartoonish place. I thought that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And like that, that cartoony kind of font that you mentioned, it sort of was almost like this retro font where it says who is Wonder Girl. Yeah, it had a very, to me at least, specifically Super Friends feel to it. And The idea that it is an issue that deals with fictions that have been created for this person. I don't know what percentage of that was intentional, but whatever it was, it really worked for me. The other thing that really worked for me in this issue was the depiction of Danny Chase, both physically Uh. and the way he was written. Yes, no, he is a little obnoxious shit in this, but I liked him better that everyone treated him that way and saw him that way. It was so much more palatable for me than when everybody's like, well, you're a cool super genius and we love you the most because you're the best at everything. 
to have them just be like, no, I'm sick of this little fuck. Fuck this guy. And also, he was drawn looking more like a kid than I think we've ever seen him be drawn before. His wardrobe has changed, which we will discuss later. But uh, I really appreciated it. I loved that. So it's a little bit ambiguous in the panel where they're coming down the stairs to kick his ass. You can't tell if Dick is vaulting over the hand railing to save him from being like pummeled by both Cyborg and Beast Boy, or if he's jumping over to join in the fracas. It's kind of tough to tell. There's a few things that are tough to tell in that. First of all, just that Starfire's like, ah, whatever, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> like, she's just grinning. But yeah, you're right. It does look like maybe Dick is jumping into the fray. And I think it is telling that he doesn't intervene and tell them to knock it off until it's clear that Beast Boy's losing the fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let's let Beast Boy pummel this kid for a while. And then Danny starts fighting back. And Nightwing's like, no, okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Break it up, guys. Logan, sit down. <laughs> yeah. It also does look in that I, it took me a while to figure out what was happening because it looked like there was just a random laser beam shooting the picture of Cyborg in the crotch. Was that Starfire just like bouncing off the wall? No, you can see there are little green lines shooting down between the explosion at Cyborg's crotch yeah. and Beast Boy. So I think Beast Boy had been in the form of like a bird or insect or something and had flown down to there. And that's where he does the transformation. And then he is transforming into the baboon to kill Danny fucking Chase at that point. I see. Yep. But no, that was difficult for me to figure out. Another thing that was kind of difficult for me to figure out is where they are coming back from that Danny wasn't with them. Because Danny was with them in San Francisco because the ceiling almost fell on him. That's right. And he fucked a bunch of shit up. And then in this, they're like, oh, man, so nice to be home again. Where did they go? Maybe they just sent Danny home on his own and then like took their time getting back. Ah, gotcha. Just like took a little vacation from Danny fucking Chase. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe they just went to a different film festival because that's like where we've seen them leave him at home from before. Mm. And maybe it was their turn to go to San Francisco for a film festival because they made Sarah Charles fly all the way to New York the last time there was one they wanted to go to. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some more Bogart movies. I don't know. Yeah, let's hope. Fair's fair. Probably they were seeing Beat the Devil this time, which isn't as good a movie. That's why they're so excited to be home again. Uh Uh-huh. Or they can watch the good Bogart movies. (laughs) Well, I think everything else that we have to discuss is going to come up when we get into the minutia. So, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Oh, boy. I guess this issue is pretty rich with timestamps. So maybe we start there. Okay. I actually was just overwhelmed by an early one and kind of got hung up on that. So I'm curious as to what ones you come up with. The main thing that I was struck by was the Star Trek The Next Generation reference. I always think of that as being a 90s TV show, but it started in 87 and it would have been out about a year at this point. But when the Titans 
arrive and Danny does that dumb fucking stunt where he's like, oh, I know, I'll just take over their plane from them and uh, take it out of their control and land it for them. That'll be relaxing for them. Ah, fucking Danny. Uh. But as he does that, he says, Data, Titans to beam down. Oh, shit. And I was like, oh, shit, that's right. Yeah, same, same surprise here that I definitely don't think of that as something that started in the 80s, but I guess it is. Yeah, and I mean, definite ties to like comic book people in that. I know Steve Gerber wrote an episode of Star Trek. Not a very good one, frankly. But like, I guess like people that were involved in comic books would have been pretty involved in Star Trek shit, too. A lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Uh, It's kind of cool. Nice. Good catch. Uh, What ones did you find? Well, we already talked about it a little bit, but the uh, fused together Rolodex. Hmm. That is a good point. Don't see a lot of Rolodexes these days. Yeah. There is also, as I said, the... uh, inadvertent perhaps nods to phantasm and hellraiser that i talked about Mm -hmm. the floating silver balls bringing great destruction and terror and raven exposing the fact that she might be a cinnabite (laughs) the other day i was doing some baking whenever i make a pie i always do the little pinwheel cookies with the leftover pie crust that are just cinnamon sugar and butter rolled inside of the pie crust yep and I made them ask Lisa if she wanted some of my Hellraiser 2 cookies. She said, what? I was like, you know, because they're Cinnabites. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that poor woman. Wow. And she got some pinwheel cookies. Hey, they're good. Hey, free Cinnabites. <laughs> well, I mean, she had to pay the toll of listening to an atrocious pun. But yeah. What other timestamps did you find? In that same scene, like right before... Phoebe fuses that Rolodex together. There's a conversation that the the woman working in the office is having with one of her suppliers where he is ostensibly like hitting on her over the phone, potentially to like try and get her to go on a date so that he will, you know, deliver the film chemicals on time or something. Yeah. And it's this big joke in the office, like, oh, just tell him you're married, blah, blah, blah. Like just the, the acceptance of like the everyday sexism in the workplace is being this thing that was joked about in the 80s yeah i like to think that that kind of casual acceptance of sexual harassment is a timestamp, but yeah i think probably you're right less so than it would have been then but yeah yeah I, I feel like it's not something that you'd see joked about so casually these days even if it does still happen well i i hope you're right but honestly i don't think either one of us is really in a position to make that call sartorially speaking what elements of fashion did you notice most in this issue so on i think it's page one donna troy's stepsister Mm -hmm. has a pretty amazing mullet and that goes with a belted yellow blouse and together that combo is super 80s it is a super solid and super 80s look yeah i definitely noticed that as well i also did want to mention as i brought it up before Danny Chase's wardrobe shift. He is now wearing a plain white t-shirt that has the Teen Titans logo on it and some blue jeans. And I feel like it does paint him much more as a Titans fanboy who is living his dream of getting to hang out with them. And he's written more that way. And that works better for me. 
Yeah, I'm glad they didn't give him a uniform. Yeah, I think Wolfman maybe did the mental math of, he says he didn't want one, but I bet he's just saying that because they won't let him wear one. Mm -hmm. I also really enjoyed, there's a couple of different outfits in the flashback on page 24, I think it is. One of them is Donna and Sharon when they are both art majors in college, and they're both just wearing really cool outfits. Donna is wearing a belted jacket over a white skirt. It is a red jacket, and it's just a really fun and weird and interesting fashion choice. Sharon, on the other hand, is wearing a blue mini dress with weird little pink rectangles that point at her crotch. and some chunky jewelry and some pink go-go boots. It's an odd look, but I think a pretty good one. Yeah, odd and good. And then below that, you get Donna opening her photography agency, I guess. Is that what you call it? Photography store? Mm -hmm. But she's opening her photography business with her two partners. And this is one where I think there was a miscue between either Wolfman and Perez, or possibly even between George Perez and the inker Bob McLeod, because I think that is supposed to be her with her two business partners who are listed on the door. Carl, who we see earlier, who is the handsome young black man in the pink shirt and white tie early in the comic book. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Richie is the other guy. But Richie looks a lot like Marv Wolfman from his cameos in this. And so I think possibly Bob McLeod, possibly Perez did this himself, but I think this looks like it is supposed to be Wolfman and Perez doing a cheers with Donna Troy. Because I think Carl is colored and inked as though he is Perez. Like the facial features and the glasses look very George Perez instead of Carl. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that because it definitely looks like Wolfman and I don't really know what Perez looks like, but it's like... I think back in the 80s, he looked a little bit more like that. I think with hair, that is kind of what he looked like. But I could be wrong about that. But he looks like he's wearing like a semi-popped collar, members-only jacket with the sleeves pushed up. Very, very 80s. And some kind of a shirt that looks like it has like a little like half ascot. Yeah, yeah, it's got some sort of little ascot cravat thing going on. It's uh, very 80s. Yeah. Certainly much more so than the Wolfman stand-in, mm-hmm. who's just wearing a pretty generic suit. Donna in that is wearing a uh, very 80s-looking purple power suit, which uh, you can't quite see the shoulder pads because of the way they're cheersing their drinks, but it seems like it almost certainly has some pretty intense shoulder pads. Oh, yeah. Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has a Beast Boy the worst of Teen Titans before Danny fucking Chase showed up, and also an Aqualad, the greatest of all Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Beast Boy, and who was your Aqualad? Well, it may not surprise you to know that I chose Danny fucking Chase to be my Beast Boy for thinking it would be cool to take over the control of the Titans jet and, uh, you know, really scare everybody and put them in danger by doing that. And then also... Mm -hmm by bringing the Phantasm Ball home and getting Donna shot by aliens. Yep, I had the same guy for the same reasons. 
He did an extraordinarily bad job in this issue. The one saving grace from a character standpoint is that he feels shitty about it and that everyone recognized that he did a shitty job, which was nice for me to see. But it doesn't change the fact that he did a real bad job. Yeah, the change of pace was great, though. Yeah. As a backup, I had Dick for as team leader when... Somebody do something! (laughs) Yeah, just yelling out, somebody do something! It's like, that's not great leadership, buddy. Especially when his whole role with the team at this point pretty much is to tell people what to do. Because, you know, you got a bunch of powerhouses and he's an acrobat. Yeah, no, I I loved that scene because my job gets crazy sometimes and... When people look to me for leadership, I I do sometimes now just have the urge to be like, somebody do something. I think that's a good strategy. That's a nice leadership move to have in your back pocket in in case of emergency. That way, you know, things go sideways. Just be like, hey, guys, I tried. Okay. I did my best. I told somebody to do something. And in that situation, something was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, but nobody did it. So it's not my fault they fucked it up. Yep, exactly. Conversely, for my Aqualad, this was more difficult for me. I went with Raven. Just fairly straightforward. She saved Donna's life and uh, seemed like kind of got off on doing it. So (laughs) good for her. Yeah, she did well. I had Donna as my Aqualad for starting a woman-owned business in the the sexist environment that, that we saw and also doing it in such a way that she was a championing people working from home. I mean, she was championing herself working from home. I think she made everybody else go to the office. I don't They don't say that explicitly. I mean, maybe. Uh, they were all at the office. <laughs> well, you, you know, she's role modeling. Ah, yeah. Lead by example. Yeah. Somebody do something. <laughs> no, I, I like that. And she stayed pretty cool despite what was I can only imagine a really intense 20 minutes or however long that it took between getting zapped with the laser and having uh, Phoebe poke around in her mind. Yeah, a very awkward 20 or so minutes for the rest of the gang, I would imagine. It's like, why are they staring at each other? Right? This is getting kind of creepy. Yeah. Should we do something? No, nah, probably not. I don't know. Yeah, I would do anything. Well, if they were supposed to do something, Dick would have told them to. He didn't, so they're in the clear. who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic manner? I had to go with with Phoebe for this one, because, I don't know, I just, I really had this feeling once she made it to Titan's Tower, she was like, I will be the center of attention, I will blow up all the aliens, and then I will make Donna stare at me for an uncomfortably long amount of time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, before giving her the big reveal, I'm just going to pass out. Cliffhanger. Yeah, I think that is a good call. I also had Phoebe for those reasons. Also, I feel like she went through a lot of unnecessary legwork to find Donna when, like, the Titans are pretty goddamn famous and they live in a giant T-shaped skyscraper. Ah, never mind. I guess Donna Troy has a secret identity. I always forget about that because she does. Well, it's also confusing, though, because in her high school yearbook, her nickname is Wonder Girl. 
yeah, you'd think some of her old uh, her old high school chums might have uh, put two and two together. Hey, you know that lady who's super famous who looks exactly like our friend who was nicknamed Wonder Girl and calls herself Wonder Girl? Mm-hmm. I think they might be the same person. I guess they put it in quotes in the yearbook, so. Yeah, also they may or may not have existed. I guess by the time she was in high school, she they existed. Mm-hmm. Probably. Probably, yep. As far as we know. The very specific reason why I went with Phoebe was as she is dying and has, I don't know, Benjamin unbuttoned herself because she starts <laughs> old and then she Benjamin buttons her way to being a pretty young lady with galaxy hair and then she gets super old again. So I guess by the time she's done Benjamin unbuttoning, she starts talking like Yoda for no reason. Because, <laughs> yeah, Dick's like... Oh, no, she's gotten very old. She's like, no, this way I am. Like, come on, lady. You know how to talk. (laughs) (laughs) She's thinking maybe just Wolfman thinks old people sound like Yoda. Uh, Yoda was very old, so he might be on to something. (laughs) So, yeah, it sounds like we are in accord that Phoebe was the president of the drama club. All right. time we took this party, Corey, to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo was your favorite? I just had the one in this issue, which was, I think, on page six, and it was Beast Boy calling DFC a stupid little moron. I had the same one. I think, honestly, the fact that you stupid little moron ended with a period instead of an exclamation point was particularly telling. Mm. Yeah, it was heartfelt. I'm not even upset about this. This is just a statement of fact. You are a stupid little moron. Yeah. Very harsh. Sorry to say it, but very satisfying as well. And I don't think we are alone in that sentiment. If you read the letters column we're having the past couple of issues, they have been, I think, going out of their way to find at least one letter per issue that's like, I don't think Danny Chase is that bad. But most of them are just like, hey, fuck this kid. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Corey, let's have ourselves a Battle of the Band Names. What band names did you find in the text of this issue? I've got two options. Okay, I've just got the one because I forgot about this category until a few minutes ago. What do you got? Well, I commend you on how quickly you you found one. This I kind of agonize over this. So, uh, two options. I've, I've got a, a, an independent, uh, just a solo hip-hop artist, and then a um, kind of retro metal band. Ooh, okay. Let's hear the first one. Okay, first one is uh, Scrawny Culprit. Oh. Yeah, he's a rapper. Yeah, that's not a bad one. Mine, I think, is also... I'm seeing it as being a rap crew, like an early rap crew, kind of like the Ultramagnetic MCs. Definitely a goofball aspect to them. But I had Cosmic Nerfball. Oh, yeah, I think I saw him open for Ugly Duckling. Oh, totally, yeah. Cosmic Nerfball. Nice. Yeah, that was... I I considered that one, actually. Hmm. 
I, I think they might be. They're affiliated with the uh, hieroglyphics crew. Mm. Yeah, like it. All right. Um, so moving into metal territory, I had the Titans of Myth. Ooh, Titans of Myth is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Very epic sounding, kind of Dio-esque. Yeah, Dio or like the sword, maybe they have that kind of okay. feel. Huh. Well, shoot, of those, uh, what direction are you leaning in? Let's see, Cosmic Nerf Ball, Scrawny Culprit, the Titans of Myth. And do we know who they are competing with yet? We do not. Uh, we do know, and I'm, I'm somewhat shocked to say this, that it is not Dick Raven. <laughs> so the voting public doesn't share our exact sense of humor that's weird oh man <laughs> i'm as surprised as you are but yeah we're gonna have to retire the law and order <laughs> sound effect <sighs> goodbye dick raven <laughs> we barely knew ye farewell although we got way too much mileage out of it way too quickly maybe that's why <laughs> yeah that's true we gotta we gotta tap the brakes next time comedic gem like that comes up yeah but yeah so they will be going up either against a thousand other failures the goth marching band or whoever won the poll after that damn i gotta say scrawny culprit sounds pretty fucking good yeah well he's he's gonna have to be a pretty amazing rapper to uh to beat whoever wins but uh you think he or she is up to it then i think they've got what it takes all right all right, so Scrawny Culprit is this week's band name. Let's see how they do. So this, for me, was the most difficult category. So many to choose from, but what was your favorite panel in this issue? Oh, man. Yeah, this was a hard one. I, I narrowed it down to two. Of those two, I think that ultimately my favorite is the big fire scene on page 17. Mm. The fire scene is really, really good. It is one of a few panels where Donna is doing her mesmerized look. I call it the jukebox hero because she literally has stars in her eyes. But it is a line drawing of her like in white that is superimposed over this intense flashback scene. And the one of the fire is really, really good. It must have taken so long to compose that and draw it and ink it and everything. The perspective is bonkers. Like the hose, the fire hose, is mm -hmm. it's almost like a 3D effect. It's like coming out to your field of view at the bottom of the page. Yeah, it's just extraordinarily well done. And... The kind of thing, too, where, like, the white line drawing of her that is superimposed over it, at casual glance, it just looks like a bunch of squiggles, like it might be smoke, like that might just be part of the chaos of this fire scene. But as you close in on it more, you're like, oh, shit, no, that's fucking Donna. And it's a beautiful picture of her that's just crafted as part of it. Mm hmm. The other really nice scene that's done in that style, there, there's a few of them, but on page, I believe it is 22, where it is her looking back, and it is again a white superimposed image of her, but she is looking back on herself wearing a white little toga in a partially remembered thing of when the orphanage burned down. It's just really cool looking. It's amazing, too, because there is like 
several hundred pounds probably of broken glass littered everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you're looking in through the spaces that were the windows before it all exploded in the fire. Yeah, you can see like the jagged scars that the fire left into the wood. And there's just so much going on. It is so expertly drawn. It's just really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Other than that, there's uh, some nice flashback panels of the old Teen Titans where Wonder Girl's picking up a boulder over her head and Aqualad, Robin, and Kid Flash are standing on it. Just from a nostalgia standpoint, I really enjoyed that. There's, of course, Gar as the hungry, hungry hippo who's killing aliens with his butt, like he's some kind of a wombat-hippo hybrid. Mm -hmm. But I think for single panels that aren't like giant full-page splashes... I got to go with one that is on the first page, and it is of Phoebe, which we know is Phoebe and not Destiny now, <laughs> holding the sketch or photograph of young Donna in her hand as she is talking to the young Evanses. That was the first panel that I saw just as I opened the book that made me just go, holy shit, Perez is on another fucking level. Yeah, that and like the opening shot is the street scene. And I swear he's drawn every single shingle on every house. That must have taken forever. It's amazing. And Bob McLeod, too, like I don't know what the division of labor is, but Bob McLeod does an amazing job with the inks on this, too. I think for a lot of the previous creative teams, Romeo Tangal was kind of the glue that held things together. and. He was amazing as an inker, and I was skeptical about reading a book that he hadn't inked. Frankly, he's done, I've been the inker on, I think, almost all of my favorite Teen Titans issues, regardless of who the penciler was. And so having a different inker step in and do that good a job is really impressive. Mm -hmm. Totally. Any other favorite panels you wanted to talk about? It's just one other little one. It's a tiny panel. It's on page 16, and it's the one where Phoebe and Donna are having that staring contest. But mm -hmm. there's these kind of mystical circles and lines uh, superimposed on them, connecting them. And mm -hmm. it just has this really cool, like, hey, magic's happening. Look. Yeah. Oh, geez. You know what? I kind of want to retroactively assign my Aqualad prize to Wonder Girl. Yeah. Because I just realized. She has had her mind altered for the past, like, I don't know, 20 years. We know that she's 20 years old now. So, like, she's had her mind altered for at least the past six years. And she hasn't really strangled that many cats, all things considered. No, what, like two? Eh, many of them were Beast Boy as cats. And I don't know to what extent <laughs> those count. count. But, like, uh, I mean, like, definitely. So there was, like, the first, the house cat, the saber-toothed tiger few different lions at various points like certainly less than a dozen cats in that time and she's been mind controlled that whole time mm -hmm. so good for her man she doesn't strangle any cats in this issue and and many of them large cats yeah so there's that well do you don't think that should count as more cats uh, no no i think it's more like excusable because they could ostensibly i don't know eat you or something i guess like a, it's like a self-defense argument Corey, you shouldn't strangle any cats. I'm just saying, if, if you're... No, don't make excuses for people, Corey. Don't strangle any cats. That's a very simple rule to live by. A lion or a tiger's trying... Like, you're don't pretty sure they're trying... Don't strangle lions and tigers, Corey. How many times do I have to tell you that? They're trying to eat you. 
Oh boy. And not just like in a playful way. That's the thing. You got to be pretty sure, right? Yeah, because sometimes they'll just like playfully eat you. Uh-huh. Like, you know. And you just let that slide. Oh, I just thought he was like a cat, like a regular size, a house cat. Wait, a, a house cat will sometimes eat you? You know how they play? And then it's like, ah, oh, yeah. I'm fighting you, not really. And then it's like, ouch. Yeah. So that on a bigger scale would be like, you got to pay attention to what's going on. So you're advocating for a pre-strangling these cats? A pre-strangling? Yeah, before you know what they're... Oh, like a preemptive strangle? Because it could go either way. Well, no, I said you have to be sure. Um, Okay. (laughs) Don't don't make me sound like a cruel person. You're the one who's advocating for cat strangulation. I'm I'm just saying, I want to be clear, I'm opposed to it. Corey? Uh, Weak on cat strangling. (laughs) Wrong for America. Well, yeah, that's probably true. Well, Corey, there is just one more question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1990, which is, you know, fairly arbitrarily assigned at this point, and the month of our Lord, March, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot. Yeah, so... In March of 1990, Aqualad was just, you know, casually planting the seed for what would become the invention of the uh, esports industry, which today is valued at, you know, I don't know, around a billion dollars in revenue annually, I think. That seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So we're going to back up a few months to February of 1990, where Aqualad got an invite to fancy party. And so he was there having some drinks, having a good time. Met a couple uh, interesting ad men, Steve Grossman and Jay Coleman from an agency called EMCI. Can't remember what that stands for, but this was the uh, agency essentially that was in charge of uh, doing PR and, and ads for Nintendo Corporation. Aqualad, you know, super into Super Mario Brothers, as we discussed on the show before. He was lamenting the fact that video games just weren't. He didn't think that they were as widely received as they should be. And hmm. he was thinking, you know, he loves swimming. And he's like, you know what is the best is the uh, Olympic swimming events. So, like, if we could figure out a way to generate the level of excitement and competition that people have around the Olympic swimming events, but for video games, you know, that would probably be great. And he, he starts getting really excited about this, wants to, like, bust out a whiteboard and start, you know, doing some ideas. The ad guys are into it. But at that point, Iki, who just had too many shots of Jaeger started flapping around, knocking things over, and they got kicked out. Oh. Yeah. But that said, the idea was planted, and that's why shortly thereafter, uh, the 8th of March, 1990, the first Nintendo World Championships was kicked off in Dallas, Texas, went on to tour 30 American cities, and yeah, viewed as the birth of esports and one of the most successful marketing efforts undertaken to date by a company. They partnered with a bunch of other companies like Pepsi and Reebok and uh, Nabisco who wanted to get in on it. And the prize for winning this, so there, there was different age categories, three different age mm-hmm. categories. And the, and the winner in each one got 10000 bucks, a 1990 Geo Metro convertible. Whoa. And a 40-inch rear production TV and a gold-painted Mario trophy. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and that, that NES cartridge that so they made these special game cartridges that had like a version of Tetris and some other games on there that the contestants had to get the best score at in a 
short amount of time. And these things are the most valuable collectible game cartridges ever released. So Aqualad actually got one in the mail as a thank you from Steve and Jay, which is worth around uh, 15000 bucks. but he lost it while moving. Oh, no. So that's a bummer. That is a bummer. But uh, yeah, oh, that's geez. one of the things that uh, Aqualad was probably up to. Was that... Do you ever see the movie The Wizard? Uh, I was with Fred Savage and uh, I believe Bo Bridges played his dad. No. It was about him trying to get his brother to the Super Mario 3 tournament. No, I didn't see that somehow. It wasn't very good. Oh, man. They needed Aqualad as a creative consultant. I guess so. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that Aqualad was up to in March of 1990. The other thing that he was up to was kind of freaking out a little bit. Mm. You see, back in his day when he was living in a cave with Aquaman and fighting undersea crime, some of their most frequent foes were pirates. Aqualad has never had a soft spot in his heart for piracy. And so when he saw an announcement being made that the Raiders were going to return to Oakland, he thought, oh no, Oakland! I'd better get there ahead of time and warn everybody. So he shows up in Oakland, and he was not particularly well-received when he showed up, because he just showed up and started yelling, the Raiders are terrible and they're coming here! I mean, he shows up at the seaport, first of all, and a lot of the sailors there still kind of miffed about him taking away the rum rations in New Zealand. Mm. I mean, I, I know these particular sailors were not from New Zealand, but there's a certain fraternity of the sea among sailors, mm-hmm. and they, they don't like having their rum taken away. So they're already like, oh, this Aqualad guy. Then he starts talking shit about the Raiders. They were not particularly pleased. and. Aqualad was kind of bummed about that, so he, he decided, yeah, you know what, even if they don't like me, I want to protect this city. So, he, he, you know, he got himself, he is, he's in the Bay Area, so he probably got himself one of those uh, bread bowls filled with rice aroni and uh, what else is in that bread bowl, Corey? It's uh, E-40 CDs, right? Well, no, because this is 1990, so the only E-40 CD that was available would technically be a The Click CD. It would be the EP Let's Slide. So that was probably what was in his bread bowl. <laughs> okay. That was what they used to serve back then. I, yeah, I know. I'm just a modern tourist. I'm sorry. Right. But uh, so, you know, he cheered himself up with one of those. And then he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the stadium. I'm going to go to the Oakland Coliseum and just hang out there. I hear that's where the Raiders are going to go. So I'm going to hang out there till they show up. And uh, on March 31st, He was uh, pretty happy that he did decide to do that. He didn't end up finding any raiders there. He didn't end up repelling any pirates. But he did get to see Rush play. What? They were touring behind the Presto album. They played at the Oakland Coliseum (laughs) on March 31st. Aqualad was pretty stoked about that. Wow. So that's what Aqualad was probably up to in March of 1990. Dang. Esports and Rush. A heady combination. Mm. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a lovely time talking with you about this comic book, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next 
three parts of the Who is Wonder Girl story. Yeah, likewise. We'll be back next week to talk some Defenders, but in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We can also be reached on the uh, socials media. We're up on the Twitter, the Facebook, uh, occasionally on the Instagram. Lisa runs that site. She's been pretty busy, so uh, we haven't been on the Instagram as much lately. We're on the LinkedIn, which I tried to look at but couldn't figure out how to. <laughs> you just type Titan up the defense. I, I did. It, it was like, do you mean Titan LLC hiring practices? I was like, I don't think so. Oh. Yeah, but we're on there. If you're a LinkedIn person, then check us out, man, and hire us to do a link mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know? It's just good business. The best we got. Yeah. We're also on, like, the you know, com, obviously, and, you know, uh, Grinder and Tumblr and all the places you would expect to learn about a podcast that the internet has to offer. We've actually gotten some very, very nice feedback uh, already. It's only been up for a little over a day now, but uh, gotten some really nice feedback on the Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn episode. So uh, thank you so much. It is really gratifying to have your support on that. It is a labor of love, but it is a labor. And so uh, it really means a lot to me to hear that people enjoyed it. So thank you for letting me know about that. And hey, if you can't find us on the social media, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing inside people's heart this week? Oh, jeez. I'm going to finish this IPA. and um, Cool. I don't know. Go to the pool. Take a nap. There's some pool in there, right? In people's hearts? Well, that's whichever one we're in. And probably be filled with blood. Oh. So you're going to get your uh, your brother blood on is what oh, you're saying. Oh, no, no, no. You're probably going to take a little splash, then then lick the blood off of some stuff. That's so gross. I hate that Hey, so you're the much. one who said you're going to do that. That's what you're into. Well, That's fine, Corey. Like I'm, a... not, I'm not trying to shame you. No, I just meant like the, you know, regular kind. Well, no, that's not what you're going to find in people's hearts. And if, if there's a pool in somebody's heart, it's going to be made of blood. Wait, so what, but... that, that's no backseas, Corey. That's what you're into. You're going to jump into a big pool full of blood, then probably lick it off of some weird stuff. That's not. No. And I hope you have fun. I'm going to be making apple butter. See, that's the um, thing. So it's a nice, wholesome activity. There's couches. There's kitchens. Sure. There's all this normal right. stuff in there. Why can't there just be a normal pool and not a blood pool? Well, because that's just unrealistic, Corey. Oh, touche. If you would like to support the show monetarily, <laughs> you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the podcast What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. There is also a whole bunch of videos where I review classic comic books. I did a bunch, not as many as I intended to. I got kind of cut off, as I said, in working on the Disco Barn episode, but I do intend to make some more. So there should be some video reviews of some classic horror comic books 
that are up there. So you can check those out. And there's a whole bunch of other video reviews that are up there and other podcasts, various specials we've done over the years. We try to make as much uh, extra stuff as we can for the people who financially support the show because it really means a lot to us and keeps us able to continue to do the show. So thank you so much for those of you who have supported us. It really means the world to me. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's a way people could do that? Well, once you get out of that disgusting blood pool, get yourself cleaned up, mm-hmm. uh, go talk to your neighbor. Or- yeah, make sure you clean the blood off of yourself before you talk to your neighbor. Otherwise, it's going to get awkward. Yeah, no, I, I said that. I said that. Okay. No, I know. I know. I'm just emphasizing oh, okay. the, the necessity of that. Yeah. So get, get yourself cleaned up and mm-hmm. head out the door. And just, uh, you know, pound, pound the pavement, talk to people, get the word out. Hey, could you use some levity? Yeah. Okay. Have you heard the good news? Yeah. Tighten up the defense. It's a show. You might like it. They probably talk about Dick Raven less than they used to. <laughs> so uh, that's one thing. Talk to friends, neighbors, whoever will listen. Just make sure you're, sure. you know, cleaned up. Why don't you also talk to your cyber neighbor on the net? Just, uh, you know, jack into the web <laughs> this and, uh, and hit up your cyber neighbor and say, like, hey, Zero Cool, why don't you and Bloodfang420 check out this new show that I came up with? Wait, you didn't come up with it. Why don't you check out this new show that <laughs> I came up with liking? It's, just say that I like. Yeah, you could say that. I'm saying if you, if you want to take credit for being the first person to, like, tighten up the defense, go for oh, it, Oh, like, yeah, before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, because now, come on. It's it's like, get, I'm worried it's getting played out because it's so corporate. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, back in the day when it was an indie darling, uh-huh. uh, I, was, I was one of the, like, you know, early adopter of this hot new tighten up the defense technology. Yep. So you can say that. Yeah. And then say, why don't you try to jack into their web? Listen to it. That's how you listen to a show, right? You jack into its web. That's what the kids say. I don't know. I might benefit from rephrasing. But, you know, get people to listen to the show. You know what words are. Use some of them. Yeah. That's good advice. So, yeah, that's that's one thing you could do. Gosh, what's another easy thing? You could leave a review. Oh, a review. Uh Uh-huh. That sounds like a great idea. You know, we have over 200 reviews on iTunes now. That's awesome. And a pretty high percentage rating. But you know what? Could be higher because there are definitely some people who did not care for that one time we talked about weed. So uh, (laughs) how about you? uh, How about you counteract all those narcs out there? Politics. We got in trouble for saying something political once, I think. Yeah, yeah, we we got in trouble for for weed and politics, and uh, I don't know, probably also some of the negative reviews are just because there have been times when we've done a bad job, but uh, you know what? (laughs) I feel like we own that. Yeah, so that means you can't use it against us. Sorry, that's the law. Otherwise, it's entrapment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, leave us a a five-star review. (laughs) Tighten up the defense. They're totally not a cop. If they were, they would have to tell you. Otherwise, it would be entrapment. Five Five stars. stars. Nice. It's just that simple. Thanks so much for listening. 
And until next time, give Rocky Balboa another shot. Mm. I thought it was pretty fun. There was a part where they come down to the ring uh, listening to uh, the song High Hopes. Mm. That's pretty good. Mm. Their opponent, his name is Mason the Line Dixon. Mm. That's fun. Mm. History. So you heard it here first. Rocky Balboa. Pretty good. Not, not as bad as we thought. You got anything to add, Corey? Nope. All right. Bye. Bye. And they know it. And they know it. Hey, just by the way, who did was there an actor that you modeled the voice of the the zombie cop after? So yes, Sergeant Conrad Nightlights was in fact modeled after Sergeant Joe Friday from Dragnet. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and that's why he's named Conrad Nightlights. It is a very dumb joke that I don't think anyone has or possibly could get, but because in my head he is possibly what happens after there was a Joe Friday, I decided to make his name something that would come after Joe and then something that could come after Friday. Friday Night Lights. So Joseph Conrad uh, and Friday Night Lights. <laughs> like I said, it was a really <laughs> stupid joke that I knew as I was writing. And I was like, nobody's going to get this. And it makes for a very awkward last name. But yeah, I was yeah he was named was after like, Jack Lights. Webb, who played Joe Friday. What does Night Lights have to do with zombies? I was racking my brain. <laughs> Yeah, that's just how my dumb head works. Uh, well, now we know. <laughs> nice work. Thank you. Mm-hmm.